0: Illinois' 13th Congressional District is a nationally targeted House race, and it's a high-profile rematch between the incumbent Republican Representative Rodney Davis and Democratic opponent Betsy Dirksen-Londrigan. She lost the race in 2018 by less than a point. This will be Davis's fifth term in office, if re-elected, and he knows he has a fight ahead of him again. He's doing his best to paint his challenger as too liberal for the district. Specifically, her support for a public health insurance option. This expensive and contentious race will be one to watch. And it's one where every ballot will count. Let's hit the music.
1: This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also
2: knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision, and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. (laughs)
0: Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your guest host, St. Louis State House reporter Jacqueline Driscoll. Joining me today is our Metro East reporter. Eric Schmidt. And also joining us today via Zoom, the Republican incumbent for Illinois' 13th District, our guest today is...
1: Ronnie Davis.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Congressman. This is a very important race for Illinois, and I am so excited to have you on, just taking me back to my roots, Illinois' 13th district. I'm so excited. So essentially, it's a rematch from the 2018 race where Congressman Davis, you also took on the Democratic opponent, Betsy Dirksen-Londrigan. I had the pleasure of covering this race in 2018, and fun fact, it's the only race in my tenure of being a political reporter where the race was actually called called early on and was incorrect. I remember being at your watch party, Congressman, and CNN called the race really early and all of us reporters were like, what? This is really early. We, you know, we didn't necessarily trust the results. And then You ended up winning, they had to reverse that. So it was a very highly contested race. So here we are back at it two years later in 2020, much of the same issues still being discussed. And the last time you faced this exact challenger, the race got a little heated. Um, So I just wanted to start off first, why did you decide to run again? And have you noticed any differences from 2018 to this year's campaigning?
1: Well, first off, I I do wanna say, I do remember that election night well the Speaker of the House at the time, Paul Ryan, saw CNN erroneously report me as losing and he called me to offer his condolences. And right then I was looking at my results and I knew my home county had yet to count a single vote. I knew we were gonna win. And I, I said, I think you're wrong, Paul. And he, uh, I'm sure the thought he's heard that before from people. He, he ends up, I hang up with him. He called me back 30 minutes later and told me I was right when CNN put it back into the undecided column And I said, well, Paul, I told you I was going to be right. And, you know, I'm glad that turned out that way. But it was a tough race. And, you know, when you go through tough races like that, you take a step back and you say, OK, do I want to engage over the next two years? Do I want to make sure that I have to go out and raise that amounts of money when you know you're going to be one of the most targeted races in the nation? I feel like I'm Nancy Pelosi's number one target, and I'm OK with that. And I got energized. My family got energized by that. I like the fight. I like to be able to go out and talk about what I have done in fulfilling the promises that I made to my constituents when I first asked for their vote back in 2012. I've served in Washington now seven and a half years, and we've got a great record to run on. And I wanna go tout that record, and not just a record before this election, but a record of success, even in the minority in the House of Representatives. That's what made me wanna do it again, and the constituents I represent because these issues being addressed by a by by the most bipartisan member of the Illinois delegation, democrat or republican, is what my con- my constituents have asked me to do, and that's why I'm running again.
2: So I think just jumping right into the main thrust of this race. I mean, it was healthcare in 2018, it's it's healthcare now. In in your district there are around 20,000 people who are on the ACA and just at a base level, what are they supposed to do without the ACA? Should it be repealed or, or should the courts say that it's no longer required? You know, what are they supposed to do without that protection?
1: Well, when you look at what's happening in Washington, D.C. right now, there seems to be a debate, uh, assuming that the ACA is going to to be uh, proven unconstitutional as a whole. I mean, this is really a fight about what they call the severability clause. I, I wouldn't be too sure. Remember back in 2012, I was running for Congress the first time, and there were a lot of people who thought that the Supreme Court at the time would actually find the ACA unconstitutional and the mandates, individual mandates, and employer mandates unconstitutional. That was not the case when Justice Roberts ruled that it was a tax and that it was constitutionally passed. This is a law passed by Congress. Now, I've actually made some changes to the ACA with bipartisan approval. The ACA has bipartisan support to fix it. And I've never been for fixing the ACA without a replacement no matter how many times my opponent says that i have voted to take away pre-existing condition coverage does not make that true as a matter of fact every time she says that it's it's pretty offensive to me because my wife's a 21-year cancer survivor she has a genetic form of cancer that could affect my kids and i would never support a replacement plan that didn't protect pre-existing condition coverage and right now the president's operating under an executive order that requires pre-existing condition coverage And we all know that the Supreme Court decided executive orders are basically uh, constitutional right now because of what the last administration did with with executive orders. So the pre-existing condition coverage is something I think is essential. Now, how do we fix the ACA? My opponent, Betsy Londrigan, says we need to fix it. But she's really not offering any solutions other than Medicare X, which even independent organizations say, would cost our hospitals $800 billion and close 39 rural hospitals in Illinois. That's That can't happen. Our rural hospitals are our first step in saving lives and getting people who are under duress stabilized to get to larger facilities and get the treatment they need. That's unacceptable for me. I'm not going to stand for that. I have tried to make the ACA better. I'm not in favor of the lawsuit that is happening right now. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Let's not make people think they're not going to keep their coverage. But we have a distinct difference in how we approach things. My approach is to actually build upon the very successful employment-based, employer-based healthcare system that most Americans have and they like. That's why I introduced a bipartisan bill to have the government subsidize COBRA payments, the employer payment portion of that, if you lost your job during this pandemic. That's a way to make sure families like mine who are going through cancer or other treatments, it makes sure that you keep your same doctors and you keep your same medical treatment plans. To me, that's a great first step. But here's where the catch is. Democrats said they were gonna fix the ACA for the 60 million Americans that still don't have healthcare coverage under the ACA, or they've got coverage that is so expensive that they can't afford to use it if they were diagnosed with a disease or a preexisting condition. Democrats promised they were gonna fix that in the ACA if you gave them control of the house. Not one single vote have I taken in the House this Congress under Nancy Pelosi's leadership that would have fixed the ACA and helped those 60 million Americans, including thousands in my district, and that's a failure.
2: You mentioned—I want to jump into a little bit because you had mentioned um, your support for employer-based health care, and during the pandemic, especially in in central and southern Illinois. At times, there are around between 7 and 11% of people unemployed, and that was uh, as of September 24th. The pandemic has shown how fraught our employment-based system of health care is. And so what beyond what you've already mentioned, what needs to change for our country's health policy to ensure people won't lose coverage because of losing a job during the pandemic or anything that might happen in the future?
1: We've got to make COBRA coverage more affordable, and that's what my bill does it allows employees to still pay just their share if they become unemployed during this pandemic. To me that's a common sense response. Why would we tell why would we tell people in this district or anywhere in America that you've lost your job. Now go sign up for Medicaid. Go sign up for the affordable care act plan that number one you're not going to be able to afford the premium, but you're going to be put into an expanded Medicaid population that has access to medical care problems. I could not imagine my family going through a job loss at the same time my wife was going through her diagnosis and her treatments for colon cancer 21 years ago. Let's not use government through through plans like Medicare X that are going to continue to destroy our local economies. And what we also have to do is pass legislation that's going to allow our small businesses to go access the hundreds of billions of dollars that are left in the PPP program because the pandemic has lasted a lot longer than any of us thought so that they can keep people employed, keep them in their jobs, keep them in the health care that they they enjoy. And then at the same time, let's go sit down in a bipartisan manner to fix the brokenness that we see under the existing Affordable Care Act that's leaving 60 million Americans behind. Any failure to do that in leadership of the House is a failure on Nancy Pelosi and the candidates she supports, like my opponent.
0: Now, President Trump, has promised to dismantle the Affordable Care Act. This is something that we heard him campaigning on in 2016 because, as you mentioned, it does leave thousands behind. Um, But he's also said that he intends to come up with a new plan. That still to this day has yet to be seen. And as you mentioned, America is in the midst of a pandemic and people are worried about losing their health care. I think that that is a very natural thing for them to feel at this time. But so how do you ease the fears of those who may be worried that they might lose their health care? And is there a new plan? Um, Because that has been promised. Is there a new plan that Americans will be able to see soon?
1: Well, first off, remember what we were promised when the Affordable Care Act passed before I got to Congress. Families were supposed to save on average $2,600 a year. That was a lie. It was untrue. Families were supposed to have access through this great uh, exchange uh, of competition so they could go in and, and have affordable coverage. That's not true. That's why we still have 60 million Americans who can go online and look all they want at the Affordable Care Act options? They can't afford them. They're not signing up. Or they're 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 scraping by, they're paying the premiums. But if they were diagnosed and those high deductibles that we were told weren't gonna happen under the Affordable Care Act, they can't meet them. They can't get the health care they deserve. So what do we do instead? Well, we've already had a plan. Remember, it passed the House. It was ridiculed and panned by the Democrats. They said we were trying to take away pre-existing condition coverage when in that bill it specifically states that nothing in this bill can take away pre-existing condition coverage. It's another one of the lies that the Democrats tell. And my opponent continues to repeat. So we had a plan. But let's look ahead. Why don't we have another plan on the floor? Why don't we have one that we could have then sat down and worked in a bipartisan way in the House under Speaker Pelosi's leadership? She promised the American people if the American people gave her the gavel in the House of Representatives, she would do that. She hasn't done it. When we were in charge, we at least put out a plan that even the Congressional Budget Office said would have lowered premiums for Americans, failed by one vote in the Senate. The plan's been out there. But really, we're not in charge of the House anymore. So the duty for introducing a plan to fix it needs to come from the Democrats in the House, too, just as much as it needs to come from us.
0: Congressman, I did want to touch on are you talking about the American Health Care Act? Is is that what you're referring to? So so again, from covering this race so closely in 2018 about the pre-existing conditions clause, you are accurate when you say that there were there was coverage for people with pre-existing conditions. However, many experts said that it would allow private insurers to raise costs on people with preexisting conditions, making insurance unaffordable. Is that your interpretation? And again, how do you ease the fears of those who may have those pre-existing conditions, like, as you mentioned, your wife, maybe your children someday?
1: Absolutely not. I, we don't believe it would have raised costs. We believe that the plan we put in place would have actually lowered costs. And frankly, the Congressional Budget Office agreed with me. Uh, but in the end, we've got to now look ahead. And I think now's the opportunity when we have split government. Let's get a bipartisan deal on the floor. There are a lot of us who are willing to stand up and say, like I have, uh, I disagree with this lawsuit that's going on in the Supreme Court right now. I I know we're in the middle of a pandemic. I don't want anybody, even those who can afford to be on the ACA exchanges, I don't want them to have to lose their coverage. I wanna make sure that we put a good plan together. But we're not seeing a willingness to address this, just like we're not seeing a willingness to address the problem of, of immigration in this country. We're not seeing a willingness to address many issues like infrastructure in a bipartisan way. These are areas where there are plenty of Republicans like me who are going to be willing to work with the Democrats on the other side of the aisle to get a bill across the floor and quit seeing these issues hijacked by the far right and the far left of our parties.
0: We'll be right back after this short break. And we're back on Politically Speaking with Congressman Rodney Davis. We had talked about healthcare care and, and what that looks like in America in the foreseeable future. So I think that is a nice segue into our discussion about coronavirus. Congressman, you did contract the virus back in August. So first and foremost, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Um, I, I was surprised as anyone that I contracted the virus. So we did everything we could to follow the CDC guidelines. Uh, and the days that my doctors thinks I think I would have picked it up uh, were forty-eight hours before I was initially diagnosed. We were out in constituent meetings and followed social distancing and wore a mask, uh, did everything we thought we could and I still I still got it. You know, I was very asymptomatic luckily and that's not the case for many Americans who are having a much tougher bout with the coronavirus than what I did. But there are millions of Americans like me that are asymptomatic and I was at least taking my temperature every day. Uh, my wife's a nurse. She uh, she made me do it at the beginning of the pandemic because she had to do it to be able to go to work. And that's how I noticed a spike. I didn't feel bad. I was up getting ready to go to the gym one morning as I was wishing her goodbye and, to, and having a good day. If she was leaving for work. I temped out at a 99 that was high for me on that thermometer. And I said, you might not want to go to work today. Let's Let's go up and go to a rapid scan facility in Springfield that my constituents all have access to. And I went up and got a test. And later that day, I came back positive. My wife, who she never tested positive. Neither did the staffers who were in enclosed cars with me. And that was good. I'm glad we caught it. uh, But at this point, we've got to do what we can to make sure that everybody follows the guidelines and, and does what they can to mitigate the risk.
2: So launching from that, do you feel like the national response has been strong enough to keep Americans safe, to keep your constituents safe? Should there have been a mask mandate?
1: No, there shouldn't have been a mask mandate. I mean, we need to have local control. Look, the CDC just released a report yesterday that showed even a large majority of people that have worn masks still were able to contract the coronavirus. I'm one of them. So as we look ahead, we've got to be able to regionalize this approach. You can't have a top-down approach because we saw the fallacy in that at the beginning of the pandemic. Remember, I was told to do PSAs at the beginning of the pandemic telling people who weren't sick not to, to make sure they didn't wear masks because it was valuable personal protective equipment that we needed for our medical professionals. So we're learning every day more and more about a disease that no one on earth knew existed a year ago. And you're going to see changes. We're consistently seeing changes in guidance from the World Health Organization, the CDC and others. Frankly, in the middle of my, my uh, quarantine for COVID, the CDC changed the length of, of quarantine guidelines. So I only had to stay in quarantine for 10 days rather than the usual 14 that, was, that existed before. So the national response could have been a lot better, but there's bipartisan failure to go around with that response. There was no one in my seven and a half years in Congress who came to me at a hearing or at a meeting anywhere and said, you know, we ought to have a national stockpile that meets goal A, B, and C. And here's how we do that. We ought to bring our supply chain for that personal protective equipment to the United States in case there's a pandemic. Not one person. There is so much bipartisan failure to go around, which is why I want to Monday morning quarterback this thing to death when it's over. I've got a bill that would create a commission that would allow us to do that and make sure that we are much more prepared for a pandemic in the future so that we don't see failures across government across administrations both this one and previous administration and a decades long problem with congress not fully funding and addressing what a national stockpile should should actually entail
2: so this has this next question has to do with covid but it's more of a question about some of the consequences of the coronavirus There is an eviction moratorium in place for both uh, the state of Illinois and from the federal government. They have different provisions that protect different kinds of uh, people in this case. When those expire, renters are still going to be liable to pay back rent. Uh, That could be thousands of dollars. What could you do in Congress to help address this issue for both tenants who face these evictions, who face back rent payments, and landlords who face mortgage payments on those properties?
1: Well, we've got to find a balance and we've got to find a way to put together a bipartisan package to address, you know, this is one of the holes that we still have that we need to fill in the previous CARES Act legislation that we passed in March and April. Uh, That's why it's essential we get back to Washington DC, call us back, put a bipartisan bill on the floor. And These are some of the issues that we can address. But instead, uh, just a week and a half ago when we were in Washington, Uh, Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats in the House rammed through on a partisan roll call, zero Republican votes, and even 18 Democrats voted against the Democrat stimulus bill that was passed in the House a week and a half ago. And there's good reasons why. In that emergency pandemic response bill, there were 71 pages of election law changes that were permanent, that would have been implemented immediately and could have disrupted the elections in states like Illinois who had already opened early voting. It could have completely upended the election processes that are already in place. That's not a pandemic response. That's not a bipartisan approach. We need realistic bipartisan agreements and we can fix that problem and many others.
0: Congressman, I wanna be respectful with your time. I know I know that you, you are busy, but I do have a couple topics that I do wanna hit briefly because I think they are both important on a national landscape, but as well to your specific district. We're in a very critical moment in history after the killing of George Floyd sparked national protests all over. Uh, Many are calling for police reform and putting an end to systemic racism. I know that you co-sponsored what is called the Justice Act, uh, but many Democrats in Congress said it didn't go far enough. They wanted more police accountability than what was included. They wanted a ban on chokeholds and no-knock warrants. While we have you, I wanted to get your take on this. Where do you stand on those specific issues?
1: Well, I stand where the Justice Act stands. Uh, Tim Scott, the only African-American Republican Senator in the U.S. Senate wrote this bill. And he's even been a victim of racial profiling on Capitol Hill. But in the end, the Democrats in the Senate, including our two senators here in Illinois, they wouldn't even vote to allow that bill to be debated. Senator Scott asked Democrats, what amendments do you need? What do you need to be able to allow this bill to go forward? And they sat on their hands and and just wanted to play politics with this. When you look at what's happening in Illinois, it's a tragedy to see what happened to George Floyd. And Derek Shope is going to be held accountable for that. That's why he's been charged with murder. And when you look at where Illinois has been, you know, when the George Floyd murder happened, I, I picked up the phone and called a friend of mine. He's a Democrat, former Democratic sheriff, Tom Snyder. He runs the Macon County Law Enforcement Training Center. I asked Tom, What can we do in Illinois? What can we do nationally to help? And he reminded me that Illinois is leading the way when it comes to higher training standards. Illinois has already implemented some of the provisions in the Justice Act. Illinois requires every officer at every level to have two extra weeks of de-escalation technique training, social justice trainings. Those are the types of things that are in the Justice Act that unfortunately don't get to be debated if Speaker Pelosi won't call our bill to the floor in the house and the Democrats continued to block it, any debate on it in the Senate. And this is really personal to me too, because I think this whole idea of defunding the police is the most ridiculous idea I've ever heard as a member of Congress. I owe my life to two well-trained African-American police officers who ran toward gunfire so that my friends and I could run away from gunfire off a baseball field just a few short years ago. I've seen what good cops can do to save lives even in the midst of gunfire. And I don't wanna ever take away their opportunity to do their job because a majority, overwhelming majority of our law enforcement officials are never going to put anyone in the situation that we saw tragically George Floyd put in.
2: Moving to another issue, because it's a little rapid fire, about college. Uh, because there are, I believe, four different universities in your district so college has gotten steadily more expensive over the years and the universities in your district cost between sixty five thousand to over a hundred thousand dollars for a four-year degree and that's without financial aid. These are public institutions by and large. How do you plan to bring down that cost burden for future Illinoisans who want to get a college education at some of these
1: campuses? Well, I know how much they cost because I have three kids at one of those public institutions right now um, so I I, I understand completely the, uh, the cost of higher education. What I've always done in, in this district, ever since I was elected, and remember it's not just four public universities, I've got four private universities, including Milliken University that I graduated from. And I also have uh, upwards of eight community college districts that my district touches. And it's a big deal, higher ed is a big deal. Every single time I've been asked to raise the Pell Grant that we have done during my service in Congress, I've also made sure that the universities know that they can't increase fees and take that Pell Grant up so that the students and families don't see a benefit of that increase. So we also have to address the costs on the front end. And we've made sure that we've uh, we've gotten the message across to our universities here in Illinois, where they have held down the ever-growing cost of college education uh, more so than they did just even seven and a half years ago. But I said I was going to actually do something about student debt in this country when I ran for this office. And I can tell you both, it's now law. I've been touting a plan that would be a private, a public private partnership between employers and graduates from college that will help them pay down their student debt. It's now law to have companies set up student repayment plans and they are incentivized to do so with our tax code. And they can pay up to $5,250 to their employees, a graduate who has student debt, pay their student loans off, and it'd be tax free to that amount for the employee. This is a huge deal. And this is the way that we address the problem we have in this country where we have more student debt than we have auto and credit card debt combined. This is a big deal that had the support uh, as their number one issue from companies like Chegg and others that deal completely with our, our, our college students in this country, they see the problem of student debt. We've addressed it by putting a good bipartisan idea into law. And I'm certainly hoping when we get out of this pandemic, that companies in this area are going to be able to take advantage of that and attract the best and the brightest by paying down those, those students and those recent grad student debt.
0: For my final question, personally, I think that many can agree when I say I cannot wait for November 4th because I think this election season has shown really how nasty sometimes politics can get. And I think we all need a little bit of a break. This is a really, again, another critical time in our in our nation's history. But if you are reelected, you've often said that you're a very bipartisan member of Congress. How are you going to work across the aisle? And how are you going to make sure that all of your constituents, their voices are all heard, whether that be someone who cast their vote for you or someone who casts their vote for your opponent?
1: Well, uh, great question, Jacqueline. I'm gonna continue to do what I've been doing. I mean, I'm ranked the 13th most bipartisan member of Congress, that's out of 435 members. I'm in the top 3%. I'm number one out of any Republican or Democrat in the state of Illinois. And that's according to the Luger Center, who kind of is the gold standard of bipartisan rankings. And think about this, my student loan assistance bill, it passed in a Democratic majority. If I didn't have the ability to work with both sides of the aisle, that never would have passed and become law, but it did. Good ideas don't necessarily have to be Republican or Democratic ideas. And I've got a history since I got elected to the Congress of being somebody who can work with all sides. Some of my best friends are on the other side of the aisle. Some of the people that I know best that are Democrats were the ones who had tears in their eyes when I saw them after that fateful morning on June 14th of 2017, when we got back to the Capitol after, after the gunman shot Steve Scalise and Matt Micah and others. So what we do in Washington, 99% of the time is bipartisan, but unfortunately the coverage only covers where we disagree. Republicans and Democrats liking each other, obviously doesn't get ratings because it didn't it doesn't get enough attention.
0: Eric has reached out to uh, Congressman Davis's opponent, Betsy Dirksen-Londrigan. He is covering this race, so you can follow him for more. We will have her on a show later this month. For all of our stories, you can head to stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at DriscollNPR. Eric, how can people follow you on Twitter?
2: Eric D. Schmid, and there's no T at the end.
0: And Congressman, how can people follow you on Twitter or find out more about your campaign online? You can follow me at at
1: Rodney Davis on Twitter. Uh, You can go to electrodney.com. Find out more about me online. And we'd love to hear from you. You live in the district? Give us a call. We'd love to put you to work and go knock on doors and, and go get those voters out.
0: I know that he'll take you up on that offer. But until next time, so long.